Yarn. Yarn 16. The eyes don't lie. It's 5pm, December 3rd, 2019, in the town of Ulster in upstate New York. I'm in the passenger seat of a police cruiser speeding along the road on the way to an incident involving a violent and abusive suspect. In the time since we've left the station, twilight has turned to darkness. Car headlights streak past us as we barrel through intersections and overtake bemused motorists. Are people usually good at getting out of your way? I manage to muster. My driver smirks as he gives me his answer. No, not usually. Maybe I should keep my mouth shut and not distract him, but I can't resist. What controls the sound of the alarm? As in the switch in tone, I think that's what I mean. I do, the officer says. I stop asking questions and grip the handrail above me. I slide from side to side on my vinyl-covered seat. It's been snowing hard all day. The roads have been cleared, but large snowy embankments line each side of the street. One skid the wrong way, and we could end up mounting the snow pile and flipping over. Why am I here? Well, let's go back a couple of hours to the Ulster Town Police Station. And what's your title? Uh, police officer. Police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Officer Mike the, Miller. I just tell people Mike, though. It's easier. It goes over a lot smoother. When you tell people you're Officer Miller, it's a little bit intimidating and kind of shuts people down. Whereas if you, I tell them Mike, then more. And you're on. I'm here to interview him about his specialty. Well, he actually has two specialties. Emergency Services Unit, which is the SWAT team, and then uh, Drug Recognition Expert, which are two completely different specialties. One doesn't really help the other at all. Today I'm interested in his second specialty, because it's a lot more rare, especially in these parts. Officer Miller is a Drug Recognition Expert, or DRE. He's been trained to identify if a suspect is impaired by substances other than alcohol, and he can isolate what drug category the suspect is under the influence of. Instead of just talking about it over coffee, Officer Miller asked me if I'd like to talk about it during a ride-along with him, in between calls. We start off in the station locker room, 15 minutes before his shift starts. It doesn't smell too bad. Yeah. No? Okay. Think this is probably like a gym or something? <laughs> Tonight's shift will run three police cars, or units. Uh, at least three, so we have a min- minimum of three for the shift. Um, Each unit consists of a single officer. They can run up to five cars per shift, but tonight they're a little short-staffed. Officer Miller's patrol area is the town of Ulster. With a population of approximately 12,000, tonight there will be a ratio of one officer per 4,000 inhabitants. But this isn't exactly true. While Officer Miller will only patrol the town of Ulster, Units from the neighbouring town of Kingston, the New York State Troopers and the County Sheriff's Department can all attend calls in his area if needed, and vice versa. Officer Miller has been working this area for 10 years. His father is a retired police officer and his uncle was the town's former chief of police. Ulster County, New York is one beautiful place to live and a great place to work. In 1993, the county's biggest employer, IBM shut the doors on its manufacturing plant. Thousands of locals lost their jobs. Much of the massive area where the factory once stood 
still lies vacant 23 years later. The area's economy never fully recovered. For its relatively small size, the county keeps its police pretty busy. Last year they recorded over 4,000 arrests county-wide. Over 1,000 were for felonies, 223 were felony drug crimes and 157 were felony violent crimes. In 2018, the town of Ulster recorded one murder, two rapes and ten assaults. I asked Officer Miller about the equipment he'll be wearing tonight. Radio, flashlight, taser, pepper spray, handcuffs, handgun, two extra magazines, an extra flashlight, flashlight on my gun. Can't have enough light because flashlights die easily. Yeah. How much does the whole pack weigh then? Experience a lot of different things. You've got a taser as well? Or? Yeah. It's one of those ones that shoots out the thing. So this is a cartridge that'll shoot about 26 feet. Um, and what happens is Fuck me. So I can hit somebody with that, it hurts like a motherfucker. Or I can hit them with darts, it's two darts that come out and they essentially freeze your body up. I asked the officer if he's ever taken a taser hit so he can understand what it feels like. I did, I tore a shoulder doing it. They don't do that anymore because of me. <laughs> One of his most important pieces of equipment is his portable radio or walkie-talkie. That portable is assigned to me so when I when I key up on the radio there's a, there's a screen that shows what radio is being hit. So it's either my car radio or my portable. And it's my portal will say Miller, and if it's a car, it'll say 384, which is my car number. So they can, if they, they're not sure who's speaking, they can look into that quick and, and see. Uh... Then it's time for me to suit up. Department policy requires I wear a bulletproof vest. I'm pretty sure it's the smallest size they have. Um, so this vest will stop a 45 from, like, and that's one of those. He shows me what a 45 caliber bullet looks like. 100 feet per second. I'm also provided with an oversized jacket. What, is it, what does it say in the back of this thing? Civilian observer. Okay. <laughs> Basically no says, one, don't shoot me. No one gets, no one gets confused. Yeah. Officer, officer, no sir, I'm a civilian observer. <laughs> Next, Officer Miller leaves me to read and sign a liability waiver form, just in case anything were to happen to me. Voluntary assumption of risk and release of liability agreement. I got an initial on each page. It says if I die. For the last section of the form, I need to fill in the reason for my ride along, or observation as it's officially called. Uh, what did we say? Um, cultural. Cultural research. Research. Safe in the knowledge that I can't sue his department, Officer Miller brings me down to see the station's processing room before we head out. Always, always look. Oh, my buddy John. Hey John, how you doing man? 10 miles an hour last night. The other officers starting their shift have a quick catch up on the events from the previous night. Yeah, well, they were coming in <laughs> from 8 o'clock on, non stop. I interrupt the chit chat to ask about the bench at the back of the room with the bar running along behind it. So you hang up the bench there on the bar, and then you know, fingerprints, photographs are all right there, all digital. I ask if anyone is currently in the cells. Nope. Nope, we are good. 
I ask about the machine in the corner with the piping and the vial of clear liquid. It's the alcohol level breath analyzer. Okay, so this, um, so every time this machine operates, it uses this as a test. It uses he holds up the vial of clear alcohol. This is set to about a 0.09 blood alcohol content. So it'll run a test using this air, and if it calibrates properly and tests within that, that standard, then it's ready to go so that we know we're going to have test of subject. So it takes this, checks it, then purges, then run your sample test from subject. I'll come back to breath testing later. After the officers have all caught up, we make our way out to the car. Actually, you're safe, Michael. I'll take care of him, don't worry. We finally get into the car. I'm not allowed to leave the car if we're out on a call, but Officer Miller points out his portable microphone. So, this, this is a mic, so when I'm out talking to somebody, you'll be able to hear what I'm saying. It transmits audio back to a speaker in the car. It might be a little muffled as what they're saying. Yeah. Um, depending. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. But if it is, I'll kind of fill you in what we got. Just as we pull onto the road, we get our first call. It's a house alarm. So, we're headed to an alarm right now. So, somebody's house is. 99 out of 100 times, it's cat or... On our way there, I ask Officer Miller about some of the equipment in the car. The most obvious being the laptop mounted at the centre panel beside the driver. Um, pretty much does everything. It does our traffic tickets. It does um, our uh, call dispatching. So you dispatch it over the radio, but then it shows up on here. Um, does. Uh, I can see where the people are, what other people are doing, where the calls are going on in the county. Uh, I can message other cars, other dispatches, I can message 911. Um, it's pretty all-inclusive, actually. As you can hear, the dispatch radar is constantly squawking. This is not just Officer Miller's dispatch. As I was saying earlier, in this area, various police department jurisdictions are nearby or overlap so it's worth keeping an ear on what the other departments are doing too. I have two radios. I usually monitor the city of Kingston too because we spend a lot of time helping them out with things. Um, but I don't respond to their calls. They just, if they need help, they call us. And it sounds like something they might need help at. I tend to start heading that way, expecting. Like they get a stabbing or a shooting or something like that. Um, so we have our radio, which is in-house for the Ulster Police Department, and then we have a 911 radio that if there's a 911 call in the county, they put it out. So let's say there's a 911 call in the town of Ulster. Uh, 911 put it out as a unit assigned to the town of Ulster for a property damage accident on Salt Hill Road. Um, and the idea is that <clears throat> the closest unit will go to a call, a 911 call rather than um, just sending one of our guys, so that it'll go out to everybody. It'll go out to us, the state police, and the sheriff's office, because we have adjoining jurisdiction. The shift starts to pick up. Calls start coming in fast. Turn green. Can you head over to AutoZone near Popeye's for a vehicle, parked vehicle that was struck by an unknown vehicle? Maybe be looking for a BMW. So our shift, my shift started 12 minutes ago, and that's a third call. I want to get one more quick question in before we arrive at the house alarm call. 
I'm curious about how the back seat works when transporting suspects. The way the back works is um, you can't open the doors from the inside. Uh -huh. um, you can only open them from the outside. And then, of course, we have the barrier between me and the, the back there. Our, our back seats are pretty, uh, pretty comfortable compared to others. There's other police departments that have a hard plastic seat. These are just regular vinyl cushion seats. And are they cuffed in the back yes. there? Yep. And then they have to wear a seatbelt? Uh, well, sure. <laughs> we arrive at the house with the alarm going off, and Officer Miller goes in to check it out. There's another police car just pulled up ahead of us, and uh, Mike just got out and both walking up the walkway up to the house. The two officers inspect the house, but find nothing. We set off again. So while we have some time, I ask Officer Miller about the drug recognition program. I start with its origins. The Los Angeles Police Department originated the program in the early 1970s when LAPD officers noticed that many of the individuals arrested for driving under the influence, or DUI, had very low or zero alcohol concentrations. Back then, roadside tests to determine if a person was under the influence of alcohol or drugs were not standardized. Through trial and error, each officer developed their own procedures in order to determine if the individual should be arrested for driving under the influence. Junior officers, modeling their superiors, would often add their own nuances to procedures. These non-standardized roadside sobriety tests frequently included variations of alphabet recitation, coin pickup tests, and assorted balance and coordination tests, but they were far from what you would call scientific. In response, two LAPD officers, Sergeant Richard Studdard and Detective Len Leeds, collaborated with various medical doctors and research psychologists to develop a simple standardized procedure for recognizing drug influence and impairment. Their efforts culminated in the development of a multi-step protocol and the first drug recognition program. One of the main things Studdard and Leeds realised was that roadside tests were not going to work for drugs other than alcohol. They needed a controlled environment, a standardised test and a specifically trained officer to carry out the test. That's when a drug recognition expert like Officer Miller gets involved. The 12-step process developed by the two LAPD officers was formally recognised by the LAPD in 1979, but it wasn't until the 90s when it went nationwide. The steps are as follows. Step one Step is a breath, one is alcohol, a breath alcohol, test. alcohol test. This is done by the arresting officer, usually on the scene. If the impairment is not explained by the breath test, the officer requests a DRE evaluation. That's when Officer Miller gets called in. What I'm used for primarily is if you have a person who's driving, they're either involved in an accident or they're stopped by the police, um, and the police officer determines them to be impaired. Um, they then put them through a breathalyzer test, um, like you saw back at the station there, and they get a result of zeros, where they you know, have no alcohol on them, or very low. So if somebody can't stand up and they've got a blood alcohol con content of a point zero two, um, which is like one beer, uh, it's more than just alcohol. So they then call me. So you come out, you have to be on duty, and you come off? No. no. Uh, I can be on duty. Uh, but they also call me in from home, too. Uh, step, two. step two. The DRE interviews the arresting officer 
and asks about the subject's behavior and if they've already admitted to taking any substances. A lot of times people will give half-truths. They don't want to completely lie to you. Um, so uh, a common question when you're dealing with DWI is, how much have you had to drink today? Well, the majority of the population is not going to say nothing when they've had something. The majority of the population will say one of two things. Either say I had one beer or I had two beers. Step three, Step three. preliminary examination and first pulse. This is to ascertain if the subject is suffering from any injury or other condition unrelated to drugs. The DRE asks the subject a series of standard questions relating to the subject's health. They're impaired, but it's determined it's not by alcohol. So I come in to see, one, if they are in fact impaired, um, or if they're possibly having some sort of a medical issue. It's possible that somebody without more training or more experience might um, misinterpret what they're seeing for drug impairment, whereas it's a medical issue. Um, diabetics with low blood sugar look like drunks. Um, people are having strokes, um, so it could be a serious medical condition that's going on. They're they're believing or assuming it's a, uh, a drug or alcohol problem, or it's not. So I can determine that that it's not it's not medical. Step four. Step four. The DRE examines the subject for horizontal gaze nystagmus and a lack of convergence. I check um, I check their eyes. A lack of convergence. So. 70% of the population can convert your eyes, so when you bring something close to your eyes, they, the eyes come together. Um, so it's not a foolproof test, but it's one of the tests that we use. Um, depressants, which include Xanax, alcohol, um, dissociative anesthetics, PCPs, um, inhalants. So an inhalant would be like huffing paint, um, and marijuana all um, produce a lack of conversion. So somebody who could regularly do it this morning after having ingested some sort of a drug, um, are now no longer able to convert their eyes. I do several che checks on their eyes. I remember the, the windshield wipers? I look for that. Um. The windshield wiper is the test for horizontal gaze nystagmus. It's an involuntary side-to-side -side jerking of the eyes as they fixate and follow an object, such as a pen or a finger that's moved horizontally in front of the subject. An unimpaired person's eyes will move smoothly. Next time you're in the pub, you can try this one out on your friends after they've had a few. Step five. Step five. Divided attention psychophysical tests. This involves the Romberg test, where you ask the subject to stand up with their eyes closed and see if they lose their balance. You can also ask the subject to estimate 30 seconds in their head. This is used to gauge the subject's internal clock and can be an indicator of stimulant or depressant use. Other balance-related tests are done here too. The walk and turn, the one leg stand, and the finger to nose test. Step six, Step six. vital signs. I'll check blood pressure, pulse, body temperature. Step seven, Step seven. darkroom examinations. The DRE estimates the subject's pupil size under three different lighting conditions with a measuring device called a pupilometer. It's basically a piece of card with a variety of different sized black circles printed on it. The DRE holds the card next to the subject's eyes so they can determine whether the subject's pupils are dilated, constricted or normal. Certain drugs affect the pupils differently. Drugs like um, cocaine or Adderall um, will make the pupils really big, dilate the pupils. Heroin, oxycodone, narcotic analgesics, they'll uh, constrict the pupils. Step eight. Step eight. Examination of muscle tone. It feels like... Uh, rigid, so if it feels like somebody's making a muscle, their entire body's locked up, cocaine. Or if it feels like uh, 
a wet noodle and something like uh, uh, heroin. Step nine is a check for recent injection sites. That's pretty self-explanatory. Step 10 and 11. The subject's statement is taken. Then the DRE will evaluate whether or not the subject is impaired and will indicate what category or categories of drugs may have contributed to the subject's impairment. The testing is really encompassing decision based on everything I'm seeing, not just the wacky convergence or the, the fact that there's horizontal gaze nystagmus, which is the The final step is a toxicological examination. This confirms exactly what substances are in the subject's system. How long does that whole test take? But hold on a second. Why not just skip to the last step, the toxicological exam? If you find a substance in someone's system, then you know that's what's impairing them, right? Not necessarily. The important factor here is impairment. Before the DRE program was that uh, you arrested somebody you believed to be impaired, they weren't drunk, you brought them down, you got blood. And that was it. Um, the issue with that is that just because you have something in your system doesn't mean you're impaired by it. So take somebody who is, has anxiety. They take five milligrams a day or two and a half milligrams a day as Xanax, um, and they've been doing it for the last 20 years. It's going to be in their blood, but they're not going to be impaired by it because it's a therapeutic level that they've taken for such a long period of time. They've built up a tolerance to it, um, and it's something that just keeps them normal. Um, whereas you take that same Xanax, give it to somebody who's never had it, and not only do they take it, but they crush it up and snort it, well, they're going to be high. I'm able to show not only are they impaired, but they're impaired by this drug category. And then you bring the blood in, and I will use Xanax since I started with that one. Um, I can go through my testing and I can see the things that they're, they're showing and say, okay, yeah, it's a CNS depressant. Um, the DRE program classifies drugs according to certain shared symptoms or effects. The drug category, everything in that category falls the same. So I can't tell you the difference between somebody who's taken Xanax and somebody who's on Haldol. They, the body reacts the same way for these drug categories. So with narcotics, I, I can't tell you that they took heroin versus oxycodone because the body will react the same way. Um, but what I can do is say that, yes, they're on a um, central nervous system depressant. How many categories are there? Seven. 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 So the DRE's seven, seven drug categories are um, one, one, central, central nervous system depressants. Central nervous system depressants slow down the operations of the brain and the body. Examples of CNS depressants include alcohol, barbiturates, anti-anxiety tranquilizers like Valium, Xanax, Prozac, Rohypnol and many other antidepressants. 2. Central nervous system stimulants. CNS stimulants accelerate the heart rate, elevate the blood pressure and speed up or overstimulate the body. Examples of CNS stimulants include cocaine, crack cocaine, amphetamines, and methamphetamines. Three, three, hallucinogens. Hallucinogens cause the user to perceive things differently than they actually are. Examples include LSD and MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Four, four, disassociative anesthetics. Disassociative anesthetics include drugs that inhibit pain by cutting off or disassociating the brain's perception of pain. PCP and its analogues are examples. Five, five. Narcotic analgesics. Narcotic analgesics relieve pain, induce euphoria, and create mood changes in the user.
Examples include opium, codeine, heroin, demerol, morphine, methadone, vicodin, and oxycodone. Six, six, inhalants. Inhalants include a wide variety of breathable substances that produce mind-altering results. Examples of inhalants are paint, gasoline, paint thinners and hairsprays. And finally, seven, seven, cannabis. Cannabis gets a category all on its own. The scientific name for marijuana. The active ingredient in cannabis is Delta 9 Detrohydrocannabinol, or THC. That's enough of the lectures, let's get back to the car. Where does alcohol come into that? Uh, central nervous system depressant. It acts a little bit differently than um, the drug version of CNS depressants. Um, alcohol will actually dilate your pupils. And what's the most, besides alcohol, what's the most common drug people are impaired by? Marijuana. Uh-huh. I mean, marijuana's very popular. After that, it's probably a mix between narcotics and, and depressants. Depressants are very common because they're easily accessed. Um, they're prescribed. Um, so it's, you know, they get it out of people's medicine cabinets or the doctor prescribes it to your friend and you're using your friend's stuff or your mom's or your grandmother's. Kind of the same thing with narcotics too. Half of them are prescribed. The job of the drug recognition expert is not just to follow the formula and recognize the symptoms of a single drug category. What if subjects are under the influence of a combination of different types of drugs, which might counteract their effects? Yes, so combinations are much more difficult um, because the reactions can be different. Um, depending, it really depends upon a lot of factors. Those include the time of ingestion, the duration of the drug, um, what time drug one versus drug two was ingested, the time that you're seeing them. It's really uh, not the easiest just as we're diving deep into polydrug users, the radio sounds off again. Aggressive and abusive today. The male's going to be in the front waiting area, no weapons. Holster three or four. Is that another call now? Yeah. Told you, it's, it could be pretty steady. I mean, we kind of go through waves. We'll probably get like point tonight or even an hour or two where it's kind of... This one's a disorderly subject, um, and has been aggressive and abusive with staff and business. Because it's a violent incident, Officer Miller switches on the siren while we make our way to the scene. People usually pretty good at moving in for you. Three people usually pretty good at moving in the lake. You are free. I have an accident at Staples in the side parking lot. Just before we get there, we hear that the situation is under control. We might have calls like this all night and not arrest anybody. Um, or we'll have nights we'll have five, six, eight arrests. When we arrive, we see that another unit has apprehended the suspect. Because of my sergeant here, I'll run in quick and make sure that he's all set. Officer Miller steps out of the car but leaves his portable microphone on so I can hear his conversation with his sergeant. John? John? How do I know him? Because we've dealt with numerous times in Ulster and... I know the name. You used to live down in... Down Rosendale area? Okay. Hmm. No, lost his house down there, I'd say like a month ago, walking down Ulster Avenue in the hospital gown. Oh, you know what? 
I stopped and checked on him. Yeah. <laughs> and he wouldn't fucking even talk to me. He wouldn't talk to you. Nothing. And I had to take him to the freaking hospital an hour later. That's right. That's right. That's right. So you're the one that talked to him. Yeah. I tried to talk to him. He said he's fine. Actually, he didn't say anything to me at all. I assume no reaction was reaction enough. Officer Miller gets back in the car and we're in service again. Um, so, probably go to the hospital and be evaluated for mental health. And you met this guy before? Yeah, actually, I saw him pretty much right here, actually, right where that fire hydrant is. Dad! Walking down the, ro- on the, down the side back road service, about a month ago with the uh, hospital again. Yeah. You get a lot of, like, mental health issues? Yeah, people. yeah big time. I regret not asking more questions about how he deals with people living with mental health issues, especially when I heard calls like this coming over the radio. While it's quiet, we go back to discussing the drug recognition program. The DR program has a novel way for officers in training to practice and hone their newly acquired skills. It involves a trip to a drug clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. So we go to Jacksonville and um, they have a clinic down there that they have people who regularly use drugs. They come in very high um, and uh, we have to then run our tests on them. We have to do a total of 12 tests that are confirmed with urine. Uh, so they give these people a urine test and I make my call for the drug category or categories that my call has to then correspond with um, the urine test. It's a good experience because it gives you a, a lot of insight and a lot of opportunity to see this in real life. Um, the impairment levels were significant. These are people that are used all day, every day. Um, heavy, heavy drug users. So the general indicators that you were seeing um, were very pronounced. But you would think you'd be less impaired the more you took, but that's not how it works. Yeah, um, when it's that level, I mean, these are people that are they're drug addicts. They're not, uh, they're not somebody who's taking their prescribed therapeutic dose for a prescription. But that's how the current opioid epidemic began, isn't it? People started out on prescribed drugs. Yeah, it's probably in the last 10 years. It really started to spike. Um, and so what happens quite regularly is that you have somebody who's a normal person, does normal people things, they get into an accident, say a car accident, and um, they then start, they're, they're injured, so they're prescribed oxycodone. Um, Narcotics are very addictive. Um, so if you have somebody who has an already addictive personality um, and taking these drugs, they'll, they'll become hooked on them um, pretty quickly. So their prescription runs out. They go back to their doctor. They can't get another script for it. So they then start buying prescription pills um, when they run out of money because prescription pills are very expensive to buy on the street. Um, upwards of $10 a milligram. Um, so if you have a 5 milligram pill, that's 50 bucks for one pill. Um, so 
when they run out of money for that, they then switch over to heroin. And heroin is like six bucks a shot. Wow, okay. So it's significantly cheaper. I'm curious about Officer Miller's opinions on the decriminalization or legalization so, of drugs. I think the legalization of marijuana isn't a bad thing. I think it needs to come with regulations, though, too. Um, and by that, I mean just like alcohol. But marijuana is different than alcohol. It, it, everybody wants to make it the same. Um, alcohol has a corresponding increase between your number of drinks and your impairment. So the amount of alcohol, you, the more alcohol you have, the more impaired you are. And it's it, it's a steady steady increase, very easy to predict. Um, also, very easy to determine, and also their blood alcohol content corresponds to their impairment level as well. So if you're a 0.10 blood alcohol content, so it's 0.10% of your blood, so a tenth of a percent of your blood is alcohol, um, then you're intoxicated. It's the New York State law to take marijuana. Marijuana is not the same way. Marijuana is fat soluble, whereas alcohol is water soluble. So marijuana so your level of THC, while it drops, your impairment level increases because as it leaves the blood, it isn't processed out of the body. It's absorbed into your fat cells, primarily um, those in your brain. So it leaves the blood. So when I take your blood, I can see how many nanograms of THC are in your blood, but that doesn't correspond to the level of impairment that we're seeing. So, there are places that when legalizing marijuana, they've said that, um, I believe the number was five, that if your, your, blood out, your blood has five or more nanograms of THC in it, that you're deemed to be impaired by marijuana. Well, it doesn't really make sense. That doesn't really work that way. Because they're trying to apply the same standards of alcohol that they do to marijuana. So, the way you do it is you just have zero tolerance on you just say, if you want to drive a car, you don't take any marijuana, or, like, what's the, how would you think it's going to be different to regulate? I, I think that, I think that once, I'm sure it's coming, once marijuana is legalized in New York State, um, that my job will become even more important, because so many more people have access to marijuana, and it'll, I think socially it's deemed as more acceptable. I found that, you know, just by talking to people that I would never drink and drive, but I would smoke and drive. Uh -huh. like that's a common theme that I see that society deems that to be a more acceptable way to, to drive a car. It, it's not. It's just a, you're, you're impaired. Yeah. You're just impaired by something different. And so I think a, a big part of that needs to be education to show that, yeah, in fact, you, you are, in fact, impaired. Um, and then that's... So you think that's coming, that's inevitable? Yes. Stuff like cocaine? No. No. I don't think we'll legalize hard drugs. No. And there's really no justifiable reason for doing so. Uh-huh. Obviously this is a politics talk, not something that would be way ahead of me, but to, to adding to the addiction problem. I think by saying it's, it's legal and that um, is like saying it's okay to take, which are two different things. I mean, look at alcohol. Alcohol's not, not good for you. It's legal. But yeah. it's, it's not good for you. But I, I don't. I think that it's important to take a stand and say that no, it's not okay. Um, because 
marijuana does have health benefits, um, or the potential for health benefits if used appropriately. Um, there's no health benefit to cocaine. Uh, marijuana, I think, is happening, and I, I, I see the benefits of it, just it needs to be more education about it, um, because society is just too accepting of the idea of smoking marijuana and driving. I wonder if Officer Miller has ever mistaken someone with a disability or health issue as being impaired. I, I did stop a guy probably two weeks ago. Um, while he was driving, he was kind of all over the road. He was going over the right lane, going over the left line, kind of weaving around. And um, so I stop him and I get up to the window and he's got slurred speech and um, kind of mumbled speech, and which are pretty good indicators of impairment. Um, his, his hand movement's kind of jerky. As I'm talking to him, it just didn't sit right in terms of direction of impairment. So I, I asked him, I said, uh, have you medical conditions? He goes, yeah, I, uh, I have Lyme disease. It got into my brain. And um, so there are times like, like that. Um, he, so he had Lyme disease. I, I brought him out of the car and I talked to him for a little bit more. Um, I checked his eyes and I, I do believe, in fact, that's what it was. Um, again, same thing where somebody with less knowledge and, and maybe uh, less experience might have made that confusion. I ask Officer Miller how many other officers in the area have his experience and how do his fellow police officers view the drug recognition program? I'm the first one in Ulster. I'm the one of five in the county, one of 300 in the state, and one of 3,000 in the country. Um, so it's pretty limited, the numbers that, that there are. And a lot of people don't understand it. Um, especially you get older police officers who have done things a certain way for so long, they don't understand the need for it or the benefit of it. Um, and a lot of people don't believe it. They, don't, they think that it's like voodoo magic, you know. Um, so it takes some time to not only tell them about it, but also show them it too. Um, but as the time goes on and they, they see the benefits of it and they see the um, accuracy rates as blood results start to come back, um, it'll get more credibility locally. Um, right, I got Hot Lane going off again, uh, third time. The only phone number they got for a key holder is the resident. This time's going to be living your emotion. We're going back to that big house. Yep, going back to the big house. The house alarm from earlier on in the shift is going off again. I ask the officer one more question before we get there. So, and what's your favorite, uh, your favorite tell? Almost is there one that you just kind of the get eyes. a kick out of the eyes? Yeah. Yep. So, um, say the eyes are the key to the soul. You can't hide the things with the eyes. You might be able to um, do the walk and turn. Uh, without any issue because you drink all day every day so your body's become accustomed to alcohol um, you might be able to do certain tests better than others or just get lucky um, you can't hide anything with your eyes thanks to officer Mike Miller and the city of Ulster Police Department for letting me observe their shift and ask questions this has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Written and produced by John Roach You can hide your lying eyes 